mostly a crowd turning out for this topic actually uh, these days because uh, one, one often has a feeling of the climate being ah, oh, it was so 2007, wasn't it? Um, but uh, no, it is a, it's an issue that's still with us, um, and uh, I'll be talking to you about some Oxford-based research in this area and uh, some of the implications, um, and giving you a bit of an overview of sort of where we're at. Um, there's always a huge range of expertise in the climate issue in any audience. Um, because, you know, some people make this their hobby and know huge amounts about it, even if they don't actually work in the university. Um, others sort of read about it occasionally in the newspapers and get, therefore, as a result, a rather misleading impression, generally, of what's going on. So I'll, I'll sort of, you know, give you a scientist's uh, perspective um, on this and on, on what's happening, um, focusing on the link between climate and weather. And I'll sort of end up with a sort of rather provocative, my view at least, um, which, I, which is not a majority majority view, actually, maybe in the minority of one, actually, on this, on, on actually how the climate issue may evolve over the next uh, uh, decade or two. Um, so I should sort of, uh, as full disclosure straight away, I, I, I don't, although I, I subscribe to the consensus position on the science of climate change, I, I'm not a big fan of the consensus approach to responses, uh, the, way we, the way we go about uh, solving the problem. Hopefully we'll get some conversation going on that at the end. <laughs> Um, the sort of situation we're in, um, uh, this is uh, just to sort of give you the perspective, global emissions of carbon dioxide, um, they, there was much excitement when they dipped um, in 2009, because of course they did, we had a recession and so forth, but even more impressively, some data which came out uh, only a couple of months ago, showing emissions in 2010, we had a really astonishing rebound um, of emissions of CO2. Um, all were basically back on back on the trend line uh, within a year. Um, although the economy isn't, it's sometimes slightly frustrating. If, it, if only the economy would track emissions, you know, we could do much, we could do much better. Um, but uh, uh, so so that's the sort of uh, CO2 emissions being one of the main drivers of climate change. Um, that tells you that you know the problem is still going on, despite the fact that it's uh, rather disappeared from the headlines. Um, and uh, we're seeing temperatures continuing to rise. Um, one, what I like to emphasize about this figure is quite a surprisingly simple the problems turned out to be. I started work on climate um, around here. I was an undergraduate here at this university, actually, around here. Nobody was talking about climate change then. Well, I mean, a few people were, nobody in this university. Um, and when I joined as a graduate student, around here, 1989, shortly before the fall of the Berlin Wall. I find it slightly worrying I'm still here, but I, I have been to other places. <laughs> I've been away and come back, as, as, as people do. Um, and uh, so, so, uh, so we, we have, um, this, is, this is global temperature. And in fact, the first paper I published on the whole topic of global climate um, was actually in support of the idea that this upswing in global temperatures was actually just part of the natural oscillation not necessarily anything to do with an externally driven climate change. The next paper I published was saying, actually, the evidence for this natural oscillation wasn't quite as strong as we thought it was. Um, and it turns out that the second paper was perhaps a little better than the first one, um, in that um, I'm just showing you here the projections based on the IPCC um, models of the sort of 1990s vintage. Um, again, mapped onto the same baseline, showing you the warming trend that was being predicted back in the 1990s. 
and how remarkably, despite all these wiggles in the curve, temperatures have tracked the, the, the overall trend predicted quite a long time ago. And you know, when I, it's important to sort of get this into scientific perspective. When I was here as a grad student, the idea that the climate could be that simple, that all you do, you pump, pump up CO2 and you see temperatures rise, oh, no, come on, it's chaotic, we, we all knew about chaos, we all knew about the sort of complexities of dynamical systems, it can't be that simple. You know? Well, it turns out, so far, the evidence is coming in that actually it is that simple. Um, and in some ways, that's been the surprise, if you say it, scientifically, over the past um, <coughs> decade or two, uh, has been just how predictably the climate system appears to respond to rising greenhouse <coughs> gases. Now, of course, you know, what's going to happen next? Is it, is it going to carry on? along those lines, or you know, is it going to surprise us in some way in the future? Obviously, I can't grant it surprising us uh, in some way in the future, and for the temperature trend, for example, to suddenly go into reverse. But some, you know, that's not where the evidence is pointing. We're seeing a relatively simple system responding to a fairly well understood driver. Now, that's important to understand, because a lot of people still get worried about the fact that we still haven't seen another temperature spike as high as happened in 1998. But what happened in 1998 was a once-in-a-century, possibly even longer, event in terms of this, this very sharp uh, spike in temperatures associated with the El Nino event that happened that year. It was a spectacular El Nino event, the likes of which we hadn't seen before or since, and probably won't see for a long time. Um, so, you know, you, you can see even by eye, and you can confirm with statistics if you're that way inclined, that, you know, that, this, this, that is exactly what we're seeing on this series. We're seeing a background trend, and occasional spikes. So we had a very spectacular La Nina, the opposite uh, uh, event uh, in 2008, which gives <coughs> this spike here. But broadly speaking, you know, the decade of the 2000s, whatever it's supposed to be called, the decade of the noughties, um, was uh, um, about uh, 0.2 degrees warmer than the decade of the 90s, which was about 0.15 degrees warmer than the decade of the 80s, which was about, uh, you know, it's going on in a fairly um, predictable way. And as a result of that, you know, these sort of revelations which come out, and we've had a lot of these over the past couple of years, you know, is, you know, and, and, and for, for members of the public, I can entirely understand people thinking, well, do I really need to worry about this if, you know, they might just publish a headline next week saying, oh, it's not a problem after all, okay? So this is a sort of a representative headline, um, but during the whole UEA email affair, um, the Times was excited about the fact that a blogger had found lots of errors in the Met Office. Like, you, you might think reading that, oh, you know, why was I worrying about this at all? Well, it's very important to realize this is what we're actually talking about. This is the figure no journalist will show you because it makes journalists look silly instead of scientists looking silly. So just, just in case anybody at the back hasn't got completely sharp eyes, we're talking about this here. It's an adjustment of 200 of a degree in the late 1870s. Okay. That was what the headline was about. Okay. And, and this is the only revision to a published data set used for the detection and attribution of climate change which resulted from the entire UEA email file. Okay, Can you believe that? Given the acreage of print and headlines and news time spent on, this, on, on, on that whole issue. I think that the, the low point of that whole affair for me was when Newsnight devoted a, a really long, detailed expose to the analysis of some faulty software. And, and I was asked to comment on this, and, and 
but they make a mistake of letting you see these things online now. So I was able to go through on the iPlayer and freeze it where they were actually showing a screenshot of the software. And the software they were analyzing <coughs> has nothing to do with this temperature record. It was, it was software for visualization of precipitation. Okay. And when I asked them about this, um, and I asked them several times, because this is what you're supposed to do on Newsnight, I sent them lots of emails saying, did you know that it was the wrong software? They never answered that question. They refused point blank to answer the question of whether they were aware of the software they were analyzing was nothing to do with. Um, I mean, that's, you know, so it's been a frustrating couple of years for climate scientists, um, and it probably hasn't uh, uh, done public understanding of the whole uh, issue much good. Um, but uh, I guess we just have to hope that we will move on. And, uh, uh, and again, it's just why we have to sort of keep reminding people that this is actually a relatively well understood problem. Um, and uh, it's not to say we've understood everything about it. But um, we can actually make quite um, uh, accurate climate predictions. And this is an example of one, which I'm quite proud of, because it was made over 10 years ago. Um, and uh, so using data to the uh, end of um, 1996, back in those days, we didn't have sort of up-to-the-minute data. So the paper wasn't published until 2000. And the, the, um, uh, the, the results were, the paper was submitted in 1999. Um, so so here's, it made a forecast of global temperature. So you see, here we are. That's the last data we had used in this was the sort of temperatures in the 90s. Uh, and uh, so we're now quite a long way on from this, the, the, the last point we had data. In fact, we're 14 years on. I'd like to point out there's a precedent for making 14-year climate forecasts. Nobody's <laughs> 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 trying to grub around in his emails. <laughs> People took climate scientists seriously, and uh, uh, so, so uh, and anyway, so so this is uh, the paper in question, and it's important to stress that this paper was submitted in the last millennium. Okay, so you know, just I so wouldn't be allowed to do that now. I don't know what my wife is doing, allowing me to muck around submitting papers on the 30th of December. But there we are. Uh, she's a very tolerant woman. Um, and uh, she's probably also speaking somewhere in this, well, actually no, she often addresses these alumni weekends, but uh, on a very, very different topic. Um, so uh, here we are, 14 years on, and there's the verification. Okay, that's what happened. Okay? Yeah, nothing up my sleeve. Thank you. Well done, Miles. Invite me back in 10 years' time and see how embarrassing the uh, progress is. But the point is, it's, it, it is, this isn't, you know, you could say, uh, no scientist is impressed by that. Uh, you know, you were just extrapolating the line. Yes, we were. We weren't just extrapolating the line. There's a little bit more science to it. I mean, but, but you know, it, it was not very complicated what we were doing. Um, and, uh, you know, we got it right. Um, and uh, so the, the implication of that is if you can do something simple and make a correct prediction, then the system probably, yeah, that, that, that gives you some confidence the system isn't quite as complicated as some people might think. The problem is that a lot of the public debate gets very much preoccupied with not so much what's happening now, um, but what happened in the distant past and you know, to what extent what's happening now is unprecedented and so on. So one of the topics which everybody gets very um, uh, obsessed by, particularly in, you know, in, in, the, um, in the blogosphere and on the internet and so on, is is this whole question of what happened over the past thousand years. 
Um, and in, in, 19, in 2000, uh, the IPCC made an assessment. They said there was a better than two in three chance that the 1990s were the warmest decade of the millennium. And I, my personal view is that that conclusion still stands, provided you remember it was only saying it was better than two in three chance. I mean, I, you know, I think there was some chance that we had a warmer decade over the past millennium, but if I had to give odds on it, I would say that the, the odds would be against that. Because this is the decade we're talking about here, the, the end of the red line there. And these are lots of different scientists' attempts at reconstructing temperatures over the past millennium. And you can also say it does put the, uh, in, fact, in fact, going back even further, that's, that's, to, that's the Middle Ages here, and then going back to the Romans back there. And you can see you know, temperatures wiggle up and down, and lots of different people have a go at this. And the overwhelming impression, I, this is not what I do, I should stress, this is just, it's, it's, not a, it's not a field I've got that heavily involved in, because to be honest, you know, I have a feeling that we'll never really know what global temperature was back in the year 1000, um, and it's an interesting question, but I'm not sure it's one we'll ever resolve to everybody's satisfaction, um, and, uh, and therefore you'll always end up with some uncertainty about just how warm the Middle Ages were. We can be confident, by the way, if we took this back to 5,000 years ago, we would see temperatures warmer than today, and we know why, because this, the Earth's orbit around the Sun was taking us to a different configuration at that time, and we therefore experienced warmer temperatures. So the fact that we've experienced warmer or colder temperatures than the 1990s in the past, by the way, nobody's really having this argument about the the noughties, the naughty, so the, the first decade of the, of the new millennium, because that was annoyingly warmer than the 1990s, and it would be harder to prove the Middle Ages were warmer back then. So, um, so, 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 so the argument's kind of drifting off into uh, the fringes uh, at the moment, and the, the main reason it is kind of a fringe argument is that, you know, even if um, the Middle Ages were warmer than the 1990s, um, it wouldn't really change our understanding of what's happening now. And this is illustrated by this figure, uh, which shows you the drivers of climate change over the past millennium. And I just wanted to throw it up because, although it's a bit of a technical figure, because it highlights some really sort of interesting things that happen. The really big drivers of weather, um, you know, the kind of weather that kills people, um, is our volcanoes. Um, and you can see on this plot the big spikes um, are, uh, arising from the, 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 the massive volcanic eruptions that occurred over the past millennia. So that's Tambora there, uh, which uh, caused the uh, several, several years without summers um, and brought very heavy famine to, to Europe. And in fact, I think this is linked to the end of the Napoleonic Wars because um, it, it, it really disrupted the population of Europe at the time. Um, that was a, a, a massive volcanic eruption, but interestingly, it, it's dwarfed by an eruption that occurred in 1259. Um, which, strangely, we don't know where that was. We can see the evidence of this eruption in the uh, ice cores. You can see the ash from it. So we can estimate how big it was. And it, it dwarfed anything else which occurred in the entire millennium. And it caused a, a, a several um, decades of colder temperatures um, and has been associated, of course it's hard to prove, but it has been associated with the onset of the Black Death because, you know, the, European harvests failed consecutively several several summers in a row, um, and uh, so the population was, you know, starving and uh, <coughs> conditions for, for disease to develop. Um, and amazingly, we don't know where it is. Some some island probably in the Pacific just blew up and just isn't there anymore. 
So, or, or, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a discovery waiting for somebody to, I mean, whoever finds that volcano has got a, got a, got a nice paper. Um, but, um, I'm not a volcano hunter, but it's um, be a nice hobby, actually, you know, exploring around the tropical Pacific, looking at a submerged atoll. And, <laughs> That's fun. Um, maybe I should change to, uh, change tag. Um, but anyway, so so uh, you know we are seeing. So, so the, the point of this really was just uh, to um, digress a little on the uncertainty in the drivers of climate change when we go back um, that sort of distance into the past, um, and therefore you know even if the Middle Ages were warmer than the present, it wouldn't really tell us anything about the near future because we don't really know why they were warmer. Was it because there was less volcanic activity? Was it because the sun was a bit hotter? Um, there's a lot of different possible explanations. You know, one of them's right, we don't know which one. It doesn't really change our understanding of what's happening now. Does that make sense? If you, don't, if you don't know the drivers, knowing the response doesn't really help you in a physical system. Um, and uh, which is why this whole somewhat vitriolic debate on you know, whether the Middle Ages were warmer or colder than, than the late 20th century is, is kind of side of um, so I talked about global temperatures here. Of course, the um, uh, you know we look at much more than that, and sort of the main line of evidence we've got that the climate's changing and it's changing in response to human influence is the correspondence uh, if, of temperatures <coughs> when we include human influence. That's with the red lines here, um, and when we uh, with what's observed, which are the black lines, and we see this not just on the global level, which is this curve I've already shown you, but uh, also in various regions of the world, we're seeing temperatures warm away from where we would have expected them to be if it was a natural, uh, pristine climate. So we're seeing this divergence of all these curves away from the blue curves, which is what uh, we would have expected in the absence of human influence on climate. Notice that the blue curves aren't completely flat because other stuff does happen. We had a lot of volcanic eruptions in the late 19th century, Krakatoa, the, 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 the likes of that. Um, so then we had a recovery from that, and a time also when the sun was becoming a bit more active in the middle of the century. Then we had a, a three major volcanic eruptions in the late 20th century. Uh, uh, Agung in the 60s, uh, uh, El Shishan and Pinatuba. That's depressed temperatures a little bit in the latter half of the 20th century. So we sort of see this uh, slight cooling uh, trend which we would have expected if there had been no human influence on climate. Whereas instead we've seen this rapid warming trend which we associate with the human drivers. So this is probably giving the impression it's all done, you know, you don't need to fund science anymore. I'd hate for you to take that message away, of course. Um, I mean, there are things happening um, which indicate we still don't really understand what's uh, going on. Um, the Arctic, for example, this is a slightly outdated sign, I apologize. Um, this was the strong retreat of Arctic sea ice which happened in 2007. It then jumped back up again and was sort of bumping, bumping down the bottom, has been sort of wobbling around the bottom of the model predicted, uh, model predictions for ice uh, retreat. Um, essentially, I, I think the, the consensus of the ice is retreating faster than this class of model suggested it should, and we don't know why. Um, is it a decadal fluctuation, um, or is it um, that the response to green, rising greenhouse gases in ice is more sensitive than expected? Um, it's hard to say, because of course, unlike the temperature record, where we can do these reconstructions back over uh, many decades to centuries, that's when the ice record begins. And even then, there's, there's precious little information. Um, nobody really wants to send ships out um, to these very dangerous parts of the ocean to measure where the ice is. You tend to avoid them. 
And so until the advent of satellites in the late 70s, we really, we really had, some, had very little data on, on what ice cover was. Um, so, you know, that makes it very hard to say what we're seeing as we see changes like this. This is sort of September sea ice in the 1980s. This is following the advent of satellites. We had no data like this before then. That's the 1990s. You see how it's 1980s, 1990s. You can see how it's evolving, and that's the, the noughties, so to speak. So. Those are the decadal averages. You, see, you, you are seeing um, some evidence of retreat, but is this a natural fluctuation, which we will, which we will see um, you know, going back and, and, and getting back on the trend as expected from the models, or is it the sign, a sign that the, that the system has uh, crossed some threshold? Uh, we don't know. Um, this is uh, the sort of sea ice minimum, which occurred in 2007, when uh, notoriously they're actually getting icebreakers almost all the way to the North Pole. And, and so, so you're actually, you know, this is typically what you'd expect, and suddenly it retreated all the way back um, to very close to the North Pole. <coughs> and uh, related to, to ice, although not sea ice, um, is the fact that um, sea, sea level um, is rising at the sort of top end of the current range of predictions. Um, and that may well be associated with uh, the retreat of Greenland ice. So again, this is a comparison of 1992 with 2007, and we're seeing the amount of area in Greenland where surface temperatures are such that the, the ice cap is shrinking. Um, so that's you know another, another um, aspect of the system which we don't fully understand and which is <coughs> responding in a way which uh, uh, is outside the range of current models. This sort of thing which is going on, this is the sort of um, uh, the, the reason we, we don't really understand um, this ice retreat uh, as well as we, uh, as well as for example we understand global temperature, is that a lot of local factors can pl play a part. So this is just an illustration of the complexity of the problem. This is the Jakobshaven uh, East Bury, I don't quite know how to pronounce it, um, ice shelf uh, in, uh, in Greenland and uh, this was its extent in 1851, and this is uh, its extent in 2006. So you can see how it's retreating, but you can also see how very uneven the retreat is. It was retreating all the way through since since, since the late um, 18th century, and so this retreat, you know, from 1875 to 1902, um, during that 25-year period, um, it appears to have retreated, you know, um, by by that much. And between 1964 and 2001, it didn't really retreat at all. And yet, 1964-2001, we actually had quite substantial anthropogenic warming. So, you know, it's complicated. You can't just make a, you know, when you get down to details like this, you can't just make this simple, you know, I can tell you this simple story at the global temperature level, but when you get to local areas, then, then it gets more complicated. And of course, it's the sort of sum of all these different glaciers breaking up and retreating and melting that contributes to that sea level uh, rise that we're seeing, and that's why, you know, there's plenty of reasons why we might be outside the model range on that. I'd also like to emphasize that, you know, I've mentioned a couple of things about sea level, where the sort of news coming in appears to be worse than we thought, so to speak. I want to stress, this is a slightly technical sign, I'm sorry about this, but I just wanted to put something in to stress that not all the new news coming in means that it's worse than we thought. Um, there's probably one, what the impression one gets from the literature is that, you know, papers come in saying it could be a bit worse, other papers come in saying, actually, and this is an example, actually there's a factor we haven't really included before, which might mean that some of the warming, which we had previously blamed on rising greenhouse gases, 
is actually due to something else. So this is a paper where they were looking at um, water vapor levels in the stratosphere, which do appear to have changed significantly. Um, and water vapor is actually a very um, significant greenhouse gas. The paper doesn't say why they've changed, but they, they, I think it seems to be generally agreed that they have. And this could account for quite a substantial component of the warming we saw since 1980. This wouldn't be in those climate models I was talking about. So no, that's not 100%. So you'd be wrong to sort of grab onto this and say, ha ha, you know, the, the, that means global warming due to greenhouse gases is not happening. Um, but it means that you know, there's an aspect of the problem that we maybe don't fully understand, which might mean that we revise down those predictions. And perhaps we're just lucky that we uh, got that prediction right. Um, for the past decade, and that we might be revising down the warming rate by that sort of magnitude in the future. But it's important to stress, you know, the debates we have about at the global level are at this level. Is it is it out by 25% too too high, or you know maybe 50%? It's not 100%. It's not you know factors of 10. It's it's you know this sort of magnitude. And, that's, and it's important to get it right, of course, um, but you know, in terms of the, the big picture of where the uncertainties are, they've, the, the whole focus has moved on from what the global temperature is going to do in the next um, 50 to 100 years. We, 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 there is uncertainty in that, and it's important to try and pin down that uncertainty, but the real uncertainties are what it means locally, what it means for, for different regions of the world. And that's, that's so much more uncertain than uh, what the global climate is doing. Um, that the, a lot of the debate tends to be rather misplaced. People sort of lock on to <coughs> two degrees and when we're going to cross two degrees and what the chances are of crossing two degrees. But you know, the real question is not when we're going to cross two degrees or, 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 or you know, how we, what we can do to avoid it, but, but what that actually means. What will a two degree warmer climate actually mean for um, the weather in regions where it matters, regions where people live? Um, so this is the question I'm now going to sort of turn to, uh, which everybody asked, you know, when will climate change affect me? When will um, these global changes we're talking about, which I've stressed are relatively simple and predictable, um, actually make a difference to conditions where people live and where, indeed, not just people, but of course animals, plants and so forth, the ecosystems of our planet uh, persist. Um, this means we've got to make a link between weather and climate. Um, and uh, I, this is where I, I sort of, the, the jargon of the field is evolving. Because uh, the World Meteorological Organization, WMO, um, traditionally has defined climate as the average weather over a 30-year period. Now, that's a terrible definition if the climate's changing um, on timescales comparable to 30 years. Because, of course, the average, think about it, so here's a, change, here's a trend, okay, average over the past 30 years is going to be that, okay? And so it's going to be a bad description of what's happening at my fingertips, yes? So um, interestingly, actually, for a long time, um, forecasters could always get the forecast, almost always get the forecast of winter um, temperatures right by saying it's going to be warmer than normal. <laughs> okay? And this sort of was getting, and it's a real problem. And actually, they, because they, they um, the Met Office is, they, 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 they have um, performance um, measures which relate to you know, how well they do at, at forecasting. And so, and, th and these performance measures were, and this, this was a real problem over the past 15 years. These performance measures were kind of worked out using this 30 year benchmark <coughs> idea 
And of course they were doing better and better. The further they moved away from the sort of period they were using for, 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 um, uh, to work out the benchmark, everybody, you know, everybody was getting bonuses. Well, I'm not And somebody, and of course the, the Met Office people themselves knew this and they, they, you know, they understood what was going on. But of course they then had a sort of you know, strange interaction with the bureaucrats who, who run these things. Um, to revise this, because they didn't. What they didn't want to do was say, "All right, let's just fix it," because then suddenly everybody would, you know, lose their bonus, or be, sort of, suddenly it would look like the Met Office was doing much worse. So you probably do notice the Met Office pretty much always forecasts. A, 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 it's, it's been a long time since the Met Office forecasted a, a cold winter, and of course we've had a couple, of course, <laughs> notoriously. Um, but um, but 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 in, in many ways, that's that's a completely rational thing to do. If this is if this is what is going on, you know, the best bet is to say it's going to be mild. And um, so, just to even to make sense of a simple a simple thing as a weather forecast, you have to understand. You have to sort of update your thinking about climate and weather. The um, the old uh, sort of a, a nicer, more rigorous definition of, of, of climate um, was. Uh, quoted by Lorenz in 1982, although I think in fact he was quoting Robert Heinlein um, in a, uh, from a novel in the early 70s. Um, climate's what you expect and weather is what you get. Um, that's, that's a nice way of thinking about it. So climate is the, the weather you should expect given the, the, what we physicists call the boundary conditions, given the levels of greenhouse gases and so forth for a particular time of year. Um, that's uh, the, the, the <coughs> climate is the full range of possible weather that you might get. And, and the chances of each different event happening. And of course, you only ever see one role of that. So, so you only ever see one uh, realization uh, of the weather of the planet. And of course, the update for this, for the 21st century, um, is uh, that climate is what you affect. I mean, as we raise greenhouse gas levels, um, uh, we, we change the expected weather, but we only see um, one one uh, realization of the weather, um, and therefore we have to make sense of this relationship between weather and climate in order to understand um, how climate affects things that really matter for people. Just to sort of illustrate this point, I've got a, a little visual aid here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, um, so, so if I uh, could trouble you, because you have to be sitting in the front row, sorry, it's always in the States in the front row, to call, call the dog and say, oh, he can roll that one. Roll, roll on the table. Call it up. I can't call it up. It's okay. So, okay, so we've got a six. Thank you very much. Do we roll it again? Two. Okay, and again, sorry. You have to roll it enthusiastically. Oops. Enthusiastically. Try again. Six again. Six, two, six. 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 Okay, stop, stop, stop. Okay. So, so um, right. Think about how you how you reacted to this. Okay. First six. You got a six. Two. Okay, okay, we're going. We're off. The second six. You were probably yeah. Okay, it happens. But the third one. <laughs> no, that's something else. Yeah? Okay? So, so yes, this is indeed a, a loaded dice. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, I'm sorry to say you're not just lucky. <laughs> Sign up for the lottery now. <laughs> okay. um, sometimes you just get a very lucky audience. I know. Um, and and uh, 
Uh, but it, it illustrates a lot of uh, sort of important points about the. the uh, by the way, you can buy them in the joke shop in Tokyo. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it illustrates some, some some important points about about the relationship between weather and climate. Um, first of all, um, you know the dice is loaded to come up six, but you still got a two. Okay, so you know yes, the weather dice are being loaded in favour of warmer winters, but we still got a couple of cold ones. Okay, um, and. Whenever there is a tendency, um, you know, dating all the way back to biblical times, whatever the weather, we seek an explanation for it. You know, either it's God punishing us, or you know, something is happening to cause it. We don't instinctively, as a species, we don't seem to like things just being random. Um, so when we had the really cold winter, you know, they, they were threatening to set up a scientific commission to actually decide if we were going to get more winters like. Um, last one, whether we should buy more snowblowers for Heathrow or something. And uh, I must say, it was, when this was mooted, um, I remember hearing that on the radio, and a lot of, and I was thinking, oh dear, um, I really hope my phone doesn't go. Um, and uh, in fact, a lot of, we were all thinking exactly the same thing, because nobody would want to be on that commission. Because no matter, what, no matter what you say, if you say, yes, it's, you know, we're going to see more winters like that, or no, we're not, you can guarantee the next winter will be the opposite. And then everybody will say, oh, so, 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 you know, it's, you, have to, you have to keep rolling. To understand what's going on, you have to keep rolling the dice. Two rows, two rolls wasn't enough. Six and a two, so what? Nothing happening, okay? Another six. Still, you know, reasonable chance of that. I'm sure you can work it out um, in three rolls. Um, and it's not until you start seeing a pattern emerging from a number of rolls um, that, uh, that, that you can actually discern what's happening to, to the climate of the dice. The other important point it illustrates is um, people often ask when a, an extreme weather event happens. You know, was this weather event caused by climate change? And you will always hear, again, after, after an event happens, a scientist popping up to say it's impossible to associate a single individual weather event with climate change. And they're quite right to say that because in the sense that, you know, I could roll this dice and get a six even without it being loaded. And all of the weather events we're seeing at the moment could have happened at some level of probability in a climate that we hadn't interfered with. Sorry, grammatical, but you know what I mean. Um, and so the the um, you know the the question you know could this event have happened without climate change is almost always answered no. But it's also answered yes. You know it could have happened uh, anyway. And the, but the real question you have to ask yourself is how much has climate change loaded the dice in favour? of this kind of event happening. It's also important to um, illustrate the fact that it doesn't make any sense at all to ask how many of the dots were due to the loading. It's obvious that makes no sense with a dice. And yet people persist in asking questions like, well, how much of Hurricane Katrina, or how much of a heat wave, or how much of what, whatever, uh, was due to climate change? And that's a silly question. You know, the, a weather event is a self-reinforcing whole. You know, it, it happens. You can consider how the probability of that event might have been affected by some external driver, but it doesn't make sense to try and divide the event up and say, you know, it would have been this much less bad um, if uh, climate change hadn't uh, been contributing. So um, this is an area we, we do quite a lot of work on, this kind of analysis of weather events. Um, and uh, the reason this sort of work is uh, is challenging um, is this is the sort of situation, this is the context we're working in. I really like this cartoon because it really illustrates the fundamental problem. So the guy on the left is saying, oh, it's quite hot today, and the guy on the right says, oh, yes, that's global warming. 
And um, this cartoon came out in 2007 when it sort of made more sense than it does now. Because uh, anyway, they say it'll be unseasonably cold next week. Oh yes, due to the unpredictable weather patterns caused by global warming. <laughs> and then the guy on the left gets angry. Says, well, if it's hot, it's proof of global warming, and if it's cold, it's still proof of global warming. And the guy said, yeah, modern climatology is an easy science. <laughs> and it's a, it's a reasonable joke, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, because you certainly, it's certainly true that we were getting to the point a couple of years ago where absolutely any weather event that happened was blamed on climate change. Um, you know, they'd phone me up to ask me whether the snow was caused by climate change. <laughs> there is, of course, a possible scenario in which climate change might make extreme snow events more likely, but there's certainly no positive evidence for that. And um, so um, we you know, need to guard against this, and I think part of the, the sort of public reaction against the science of climate change is this perception that the scientists are blaming absolutely everything on human influence on climate. When, you know, to be honest, we weren't. Uh, we, were, we were pretty cool. We have been pretty cautious about making the link between climate and weather. It's, we don't, you know, it's not to say it can't be done, but uh, it is relatively hard to do. Um, and since this is something that um, my group and, and uh, the, university, the university here has uh, devoted a lot of uh, energy to, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we do it uh, for the rest of this talk. Here's an example of the kind of weather event you might uh, want to try and attribute, ask the question at least, what did human influence on climate have to do with it? Um, this is a thermal image of temperatures in uh, August 2003 uh, in Europe. And uh, you may remember uh, this summer. Um, it was uh, a record-breaking summer over, over most of Europe. Um, and was uh, we saw, particularly in uh, central France and southern Germany, temperatures uh, over 10 degrees above normal for that time of year. Um, and. Uh, I remember in, in, in Britain it was hot, and in fact uh, the uh, temperatures reached 100 degrees in Heathrow for the first time ever, and that was the, that was the sun's headline. For, they rounded it up, so they made it 101, which I think was quite funny. But anyway, that was it was certainly it was hot in, in the UK, but not not a, uh, I mean, and, and that indeed caused um, some. Uh, the, the, the estimates are some few thousand deaths in the southeast, um, but it was certainly nothing compared to the uh, uh, the, the anomalies experienced across Europe. Um, my uh, a year or so after the event, um, I was uh, being interviewed uh, for I think it was Sky um, to talk about weather events and climate change, and they wanted a kid on the program who could talk because then so they could talk about what the climate was going to be like when this kid had grown up, and uh, because of the complexities of getting any kid on telly and the number of disclaimers you, you have to sign. Um, we persuaded my daughter to do it, because of course you know, I could sort of sign the road and me. And uh, she was up for this, and she, 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 was, uh, she, was, uh, she, was, she was, did a charming job. Um, but, but it all got slightly awkward when they sort of ran this microphone at her and said, do you remember that summer? And you know, she'd, just, she'd just been listening to her dad, you know, moaning on about climate and you know, what a worry it was and all this sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, what was it like? And she was doing her thing. Yeah, she's a very honest girl. She didn't want to say, you know, that it was terrible. Yeah, it, was, it was a really nice summer. She really, <laughs> really enjoyed it. She knew that was kind of the wrong answer. I'm so, and, uh, so, so they, for, fortunately for her, I think she sort of rather got stuck at that point. They, they didn't cut that bit out. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't broadcast that. It was probably just as well. Anyway, um, but um, so there was a serious uh, event in that um, this shows you daily mortality, so um, deaths per 100,000, 
um, in Baden-Württemberg in southern Germany. So this is, you can't blame this graph on the French health system, which is what a lot of people blame the French deaths on. Um, and uh, you can see the seasonal cycle of death. So people die uh, in winter uh, faster than they die in summer. And you can see the impact of a flu epidemic uh, early in 2003. And then you can see this spike in mortality um, just during that, those two weeks associated with the heat wave. Um, and epidemiologists have been trawling over this data ever since to try and work out um, how many of these deaths were going to happen anyway in the next few months and how many were you know, brought forward by more than a year, which is what sort of epidemiologists uh, uh, regard as a sort of uh, you know, serious, serious you know, advancement. Serious, you know, it's brought forward by a few months. But I mean, that's, that's the kind of um, threshold they use. Um, and the conclusion is, uh, having trawled over the data, that, that heat wave did kill between 30 and 40,000 people across Europe. Now, to put that in context, um, the Chernobyl nuclear event, um, over the full period since it occurred, has probably killed fewer than 5,000. Maybe, maybe, maybe 6,000, but not, not remotely close to that number. And that event had the impact of shutting down the nuclear industry, in effect. And there was no new nuclear built after Chernobyl for, for, for some time. Um, and uh, so, which of course raises an interesting question, you know, to what extent was this an industrial accident? Okay. And that's the kind of question we like to ask. So, you can't ask that question, back to the loaded dice analogy. If you roll the dice once and you get a six, you can't say anything, because, you know, you might have got a six anyway. So you can only really tell how much the loading has pushed the dice towards coming up six by rolling it many times. And of course, in the real world, we can't roll the real world many times. And when we're talking about one in 30 year events, we can't wait for 30 years to see how the statistics of these events are changing. Even for a one in 30 year event, you'd have to wait several hundred years to see um, how the statistics of that kind of event were changing because they don't happen very often. You have to, have to wait for a while to count. So the only way really of doing this, or the only way we thought of so far, open suggestions, um, is, uh, is to, to simulate the climate system as best we can. So we do these experiments in silica, if you like, uh, and compare the statistics of weather events in, in simulated climates with and without human influence. And this shows uh, one illustration of, of this kind of work. Um, so the red and orange lines are climates including human influence. And the natural, uh, the, the green line, it's an average of four, so that's why it looks a bit smoother, uh, is the way um, the, the climate is estimated would have evolved without human influence. Um, and you can see they're separating out by around, this is just European summer temperatures, they're separating out by around half a degree uh, by the time we got to 2003. And we can assess what that half a degree of warming means for the um, risk of that event occurring. And this is a slightly technical slide, but the way you sort of we have to analyze this work. If I, on the horizontal, it's the return period, the, 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 the chance of an event happening, one over the chance of an event happening every year, so a 100 year a return period event would be one in 100 chance of it happening, and so on, 1,000 year, um, one in 1,000 and so forth. And uh, never mind these lines for now. Um, the, here we've got sort of blue is uh, the way it uh, would have been without human influence, green if we include human influence, you can see there's this consistent, there's a separation here. The fuzziness is because we don't really know. There's uncertainty in both of these return periods. But they've separated that. There's a pretty clear 
um, uh, indication that the risk of such a heat wave has increased, and that that magnitude of that increase is a roughly uh, ninefold increase on this. So, so in fact, we um, so something which was a one in a thousand year event has been brought down to one in a hundred and something year event, um, and that's the kind of change of risk we estimate for um, these extreme heat waves. Um, that said, so so that, that's a that's a very substantial um, increase in risk for heat waves. But um, as you probably recall, heat waves don't. Um, Britain at the moment um, didn't suffer that that badly from the 2003 heat waves. You know, maybe we'll have more damaging heat waves in the future, but that certainly wasn't a particularly costly event for the UK. Um, kind of events um, which we really care about in this part of the world uh, are these ones. Um, in case you don't, anybody who lives in Oxford will possibly recognise this. So Vicarage Lane, just off the Abingdon Road, um, and uh, this was uh, 2003. Um, Oxford, as you know, is uh, it flooded in 1898, 1947, 2000, no, sorry, 1898, 947, 2000, 2003, and 2007. So, you know, <coughs> we're rolling the dice. Um, but it's, it's sort of raises the question, um, you know, is, is anything um, it's a much harder problem than the heat wave one because the link between global greenhouse gases and um, precipitation in Oxfordshire is a much more complicated one than the link between global greenhouse gases and European summer temperatures. It's a, it's, there's just more physical steps in the causal chain, more, more points where you can go wrong in, in making the link. Um, in fact, we have yet to do an analysis um, specifically on the 2003 event um, because um, we've been focusing, in fact, um, on a more expensive event for the UK as a whole, um, the one that occurred in the floods that occurred um, uh, in, across England and Wales in the autumn of 2000. Um, the reason this was um, sort of a better event for us to look at was it was, it was a larger scale event. That what happened in 2003 was more localised to Oxfordshire. Um, and uh, this is a, uh, a street in York, which was underwater in 2000. Apparently, this, the street's quite often underwater. Um, so that in itself wasn't remarkable. You know, one six doesn't tell you anything. But most of the rest of Britain was underwater at the same time. So, or the, you know, large chunks of it. Um, and raising the question, you know, was this um, uh, anything uh, to do with human influence on climate? And back, at that, back then, you may recall John Prescott had no doubts. Uh, he basically said, oh, this is it. Uh, people are seeing... These ferocious storms, long summer droughts, torrential rains, more extreme and more frequent, they know something's wrong and that climate change now affects them. So, so um, John Prescott had, had done it by November 2000. Um, uh, so, however, um, as scientists, we kind of wanted to know, well, was, was he right? I mean, you know, was, was, was this statement um, defensible? Um, and. Uh, Answering the question has taken us quite a long time. Um, there's some sort of some evidence. This is a, a recent paper to suggest it's a reasonable supposition. It's a reasonable question to ask. Uh, in the sense, a uh, paper published um, uh, earlier this year uh, by some uh, Canadian authors showed that uh, in many parts of the world, U.S., Central Europe, Central uh, Russia, we are seeing an increase in more extreme <coughs> precipitation events. But notice the UK is blank here. We, we don't actually see a significant trend in extreme precipitation 
we just look at the UK on its own. So, you know, and, and you wouldn't necessarily expect to because it's noisy. You know, it's, it's, you, you, you've only rolled the dice a few times. So, um, the only way we felt we could answer this question uh, was to do an experiment uh, using simulation. Uh, but the challenge we had was that we were talking about an event which was very, it wasn't forecast, very hard to simulate, you know, very hard to predict. Um, and so you couldn't just expect to, you know, roll the dice three or four times and see the event in question. Um, all the evidence was this was on the lines of a triple six event. You know, I mean, we were talking about a one in a hundred uh, or more um, chances of the event occurring. And if you want to see how the odds of a triple six are changing, okay, um, well, before anybody jumps in and points out you could count the numbers of single sixes, but suppose, suppose I had a, a, a dice which had sort of magnets in them so that they, the, the odds on a single six, this would be really clever actually, the odds on a single six wasn't changed, but the odds on a double six was. Okay, so I'd have the, right. so, so suppose I was doing that. I would only detect that by rolling the dice a lot. I mean, to, 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 to spot that the single dice is loaded is, is easy. But to, to spot that there was some subtle interaction going on which increased the odds of a really extreme event takes a lot of simulation. So we knew we were going to have to, 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 in order to count events of the magnitude that we saw in 2000, we were going to have to simulate the system thousands and thousands of times. And we were going to have to use a weather model, not just one of these coarse resolution climate models that, that people use to make these 100-year projections, we were going to have to use a model which actually simulated weather in this part of the world at a reasonable resolution. Um, so this was the challenge. Um, uh, actually, I'd say we set ourselves. It was a challenge that a, a graduate student, so probably Paul, um, set himself. Uh, he, he, he came to the university to do this. A very nice example is of, a, of how a, how a, a, a doctoral project um, can evolve. Um, he, he came here to, to the university to do a very different project. Um, he came up with this idea at the beginning of the second year. Um, I actually advised him against it, because I said, uh, you know, this is way beyond what you can manage in, in a doctorate. Uh, but he was a very, you know, he's a very stubborn guy, and he said, no, this is what he wanted to do. And so um, at the time, we were running um, experiments uh, using this uh, climateprediction.net uh, system doing simulations of global climate. And uh, so Pardee had to persuade the computer scientists who were running climateprediction.net to um, run a different type of experiment, which allowed him to explore um, the weather of the year 2000 many, many times um, in order to compare the statistics of the weather with and without um, the signature of human influence to get an idea of how um, uh, the uh, statistics might be changing. So, um, crucially in this, there's no way we could afford, or anybody in the UK could have afforded to do these simulations using dedicated supercomputing. Um, there's far, far too many simulations were required. So the only way we were actually able to do it uh, was uh, using uh, home PCs, basically donated by the general public. So, so the, the model was set up on a, on a website, people could download it, um, and uh, they, they ran the simulations and sent us back their results, and if anybody in this room has participated in this, thank you very much. And these experiments are still going on. Um, we're, we're, we're running, we're still doing attribution experiments, we've got more sophisticated setups now than, than Parleeps, but... Um, uh, but if you want to join in um, and help us understand climate and weather interact, um, go to this website, climateprediction.net. Um, but so, so that's just a snapshot of a screenshot of it running on somebody's PC somewhere. Um, and these are the people who, who do the work for us, um, uh, scattered over the world. Um, and uh, 
uh, including the, the, there is actually one at the South Pole. I think there's some, somebody, in the, somebody in, the, in the American base there is, 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 is running it. They were running it. Um, and uh, so, so uh, and, and earlier this year, uh, we had a, a paper on, on the cover of Nature um, showing um, Pardeep's results. So um, on that, I think he, he, he I think initiated this um, project in 2004. So on one hand, I was right that it took him longer than it should have done um, to get it done, but he didn't have the last laugh. So this shows um, what, what we were doing um, and sort of illustrates the idea. Um, that's what happened in the top panel um, during uh, autumn 2000. And you can see um, it wasn't. It, the dates up at the top there, you see going through October, um, middle October, you can see there wasn't a single bright blue. Blue is rain and uh, the arrows indicate wind. And it wasn't just a single downpour. It was a succession of depressions moving across, dumping unusually large amounts of rain on the UK, which essentially just saturated the soil and it could no longer take any more and it just it flooded. Um, this is the sort of model precipitation we're seeing in one of our, um, uh, one member of our ensemble. It's a fairly wet one, this one. Um, and the point is that, you know, visually, it, it passes the laugh test. It, it looks like the observations. Uh, we, can, we obviously um, do a lot more um, to it to check that the model is capable of simulating the kind of weather events uh, that we're interested in. Uh, but having satisfied ourselves of that, we're then able to compare how the world looked in the model um, with and without human influence on climate. So this is a very substantially messier picture than the heat wave one. Okay? So the blue curve is, and there's some uncertainty in the blue curve as well, um, the blue curve is the way uh, we expect the chance of exceeding a particular threshold, the threshold which was exceeded is the black line here, um, depends on um, uh, the, how that chance uh, depends on the height of the threshold. So that's with all factors included, with human influence um, uh, allowed for, um, and then all the fuzzy green curves are without um, uh, human, with, with human influence removed. We can do that in the computer, we can't do it in the real world. Um, and uh, you can see, you know, it's fuzzy, there's some chance that actually there hasn't been any increase in risk. Um, best estimate, maybe a two-fold increase, very different from a nine-fold increase we were talking about with the heat wave. Okay, so, um, and that's the sort of change we're talking about. So it's a much fuzzier picture than the heat wave. And that's, I think, broadly where the consensus stands um, for these kind of flood events. It's important to stress, this picture applies to autumn floods. Um, and there's been a follow-up study done by some colleagues down at the um, uh, Center for Ecology and Hydrology in Wallingford, uh, which party was also involved in, um, where they've looked at spring floods. And they found that spring flood risk has actually gone down. And you might expect well, why, why? Well, because spring floods are typically caused, in the past at least, they've been caused by rapid snow melt, melting of accumulated snow. This is not something that happens anymore. Okay? So, so spring flood risk has declined at the same time that autumn flood risk has gone up. So it's a bit like you know, the British Rail excuse, it's the right kind of floods. Um, so, so it's important to, to understand you know, in detail what kind of weather range you're talking about. You can't just make a blanket statement, you know, Climate change makes floods more frequent. But you can say, for a particular weather event that's occurred, how has climate change led to the in favor of this event happening? Um, so the reason this gets interesting um, is that, uh, 
sort of illustrated by this quote here from a paper, this is not a scientific paper, it's a paper in the Columbia Journal of Environmental Law by David Grossman, and he, he <coughs> says that some plaintiffs in a, uh, a tort case, this is, there's any lawyers in the room, must show that more probably than not their injuries are caused by the risk factor in question, and yada, 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 this has been translated into a relative risk of a round two. So, the autumn 2000 floods, I would say, probably don't exceed this threshold at any standard confidence level. If you had to say, are you 95% confident that the risk has increased by more than a factor of two? I'd say no. My, my best estimate is that the risk has increased by a factor of two, but there's a lot of uncertainty in that. I'd say there's you know, still a reasonable chance that the risk has not increased by, um, uh, that, by that amount. Uh, on the other hand, the, um, uh, the, the Stottedal study of the heat waves um, uh, did... For, for that event, I think we were able to conclude that uh, our human influence was uh, very likely to contribute at least half the risk or increased it by a factor of two. So, um, where is this, you know, where is this taking us to? Um, you know, global climate change is, is proceeding, uh, perhaps surprisingly simply, um, relative to predictions made quite a long time ago now. Um, you want to be careful of, you know, uh, every, um, you know, everybody, uh, every dog blaming uh, every new weather event on climate change. Um, it's a new challenge for the climate community, distinguishing the impacts of climate change from these sort of unfortunate consequences of bad weather. Uh, it's something which, it, it's a, it is a big new driver of climate science at the moment. Um, this is particularly important because um, hundreds of billions of dollars are being promised for adaptation to climate change. And a lot of us are concerned that um, how, nobody really seems to have thought of how they're going to work out who's adapting to climate change and who's simply living in the wrong place. Um, if, um, you know, if, if, if Russia uh, finds that it's uh, uh, having to spend money on, uh, against uh, coal, then Russia probably loses a lot of citizens to cold winters every year. Not, not as many as, as we would if the winters were that cold, but, but nevertheless, it's, it's a serious problem for them. You know, that's an impact of weather. Should they be eligible for assistance from these climate change funds to insulate their houses better? Most people say, well, no, because climate change isn't making the winters worse, it's probably making them less bad. Um, okay, so that's quite an easy one, although no science has been done to support that statement, that's just a sort of gut feeling. Um, but you can see there's a whole spectrum of, of, of claims people could make, um, and it's already happening. Um, every country in the world that finds itself badly affected by, by, by the weather is coming up and saying, hey, we need some climate change assistance. Um, and it's going to be very unfair if this money is just handed out to whoever shouts loudest without the science base to say um, who is actually being affected and who is not. And we don't have that science base at the moment, so it's important that it's developed as fast as possible. Um, I had an illustration of an example where human influence in a prominent um, uh, events, the Russian heat wave, where at the moment we believe human influence did not play a particularly big role in, in that heat, in that particular heat wave. Um, but I'm sort of running um, onto my hour and I did want to leave time for questions, so I'll probably sort of skate on through that um, and also through that rather sort of. Um, uh, so, but I will just sort of um, throw in uh, some thoughts about a topic which a lot of people are very intrigued by at the moment. Which is the possibility, okay, you know, the world's getting warmer, there's all these events happening. Um, what about just putting some mirrors up in space um, and uh, keeping the world cool that way? Is that, is that a, 
is that a way out of this whole issue? Um, I really like this artist's impression because whoever put that space mirror up there lost their job because, hey guys, the sun's over there. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, and there's another technology people are promoting which is sort of robotic ships sailing around the ocean spraying seawater into the air to make clouds which will reflect sunlight. Um, all sorts of ideas are being um, uh, put about. Um, the reason I see it as a very long time, if ever, that any of this actually happens is actually nothing to do with its technical feasibility. Um, it is perfectly technically feasible to engineer the climate to make the planet colder, um, and we're, we're, we're already engineering the climate to make the planet warmer, but you know, we, we, could, we could engineer the climate to make the planet as a cold colder. Um, the reason I think this will be very challenging um, is illustrated by this um, figure. Again, apologies for being a, it's a technical paper, but um, published, uh, which we published with some colleagues in uh, um, Carnegie Mellon. Well, the authors haven't come out very clearly. Rick Morgan and Alan, anyway. Um, but uh, uh, which, which uh, uh, a, a, another nice example of a student project. This was a, a student at Carnegie Mellon who came here for a summer project. This uh, appeared in Nature uh, uh, Science last year. Um, and uh, so um, what Kate did, this is also using the climateprediction.net um, community to do the simulations. Uh, what Kate did was simulate um, uh, the future um, as, as, as we evolve into the future under various scenarios for levels of geoengineering and asked the question, uh, what would it take, what amount of geoengineering, what amount of uh, uh, modifying incoming sunlight by spraying um, whatever technology you chose to use, either mirrors in space or whatever, um, uh, what, what would it take to restore um, temperature and precipitation in two regions of the world to the sort of region you'd expect them to be in a pre-industrial climate. Okay, so how much geoengineering would, it, would, you, would you need to get, for example, India's temperature and precipitation back to where it was before? So, India, by the time you get to the 2070s, you've got a big greenhouse signal, so you need quite a lot of geoengineering. So, 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 um, so uh, sorry, I got sorry, so with China, uh, by the time you get to 2070s, you've got a lot of um, uh, greenhouse induced warming, and you need a lot of geoengineering to restore Chinese temperatures back to um, uh, their sort of pre-industrial range. Okay, so China would want a lot of geoengineering. Okay, India, <laughs> by contrast, hasn't warmed that much, and if you put that much geoengineering into India, you'd actually move it outside the range of pre-industrial climate. Okay. Now, the reason this is interesting, we just chose China and India because they're two regions, fairly large regions in the climate model. But there are also regions in the real world that are armed with nuclear weapons. Um, and how they would reach agreement on the amount of geoengineering to use is an interesting problem. This is the reason I don't think geoengineering is going to happen. I don't see agreement on, I don't see any mechanism for people agreeing on how, how much and, and what indeed to do about it. Because as soon as you start geoengineering, it really is the end of Acts of God. Whoever's doing it takes responsibility <coughs> for the weather everywhere in the world from then on. This is not a responsibility anyone's likely to take on lightly. Um, interestingly, I was at a meeting in the US where um, this is in the somebody from the previous administration was giving a talk on geoengineering, and he sort of said, there's a throwaway line, 
Of course, we'd have to do something to make sure that we were covered for liability. <laughs> <laughs> Too right. <coughs> So um, that's the real problem with geoengineering. Um, so just to sum up, um, people are very <coughs> concerned about, and people talk a lot about tipping point climate <coughs> But I think actually the real climate tipping point uh, for the next decade or two, I'm, I may be wrong of course on this, we may cross some physical threshold in the climate system, but, uh, but I think the real, um, uh, the really interesting tipping point is to do with information. Um, the science of what we call event attribution is evolving fast, and we are getting to the point where um, if a risk can be forecast, if it's part of the seasonal forecast, it can be attributed. So there's no reason <coughs> for the press office at the end of every year or at the end of every season to say, okay, of the stuff which happened over the last season, human influence on climate made these events more likely, these events less likely, and they can tell you how much. There's no reason for the press office not to provide this as a service. They're not doing it at the moment because they're not paid to do it. Okay, I believe they should be paid to do it. I mean, it seems to me this would be a very useful expenditure of taxpayers' money, because people want to know the answer to these questions. Um, and if we do this on a regular basis, and we develop this science and make sure it's robust, um, eventually we will get what I call the real Katerina. Um, Hurricane Katerina was not the real Katerina, because it was impossible to say, and still is, how much human influence on climate actually contributed to that event. But at some point, an event will occur that does a lot of people harm, where the science is clear that human influence has played a role in making it more likely. <coughs> At that point, will the victims just say, that's tough, um, or will they start demanding compensation from the beneficiaries of CO2 emissions? Um, and the point is, you know, if they were to demand compensation, the money would be there. Um, you know, oil prices are stuck up at $1 a barrel. There's plenty of money in the fossil fuel industry to pay for the impacts of climate change as they occur, uh, or indeed to pay for the cost of not emitting the CO2 in the first place. So when this all occurs, is unknowable, um, but because it's a random event, uh, but when it is, um, whoever's ready for it will literally clean up. <laughs>